Hi, welcome to our final lecture. Now, before I wrote the first word of the first lecture in this series, I asked myself, what would someone most want to learn about complex systems? Why would they want to just into a course in com about complexity? And I came up with two reasons. And I might add that these are the two reasons why I continue my own research into complex systems. The first, quite simply, is that complex systems are inherently interesting, whether it's emergent phenomena like consciousness and culture, or it's the fact that these systems are both robust and prone to producing these large events. You don't have to be in the mood to be amazed to find complex systems amazing. They can also produce amazing novelty, and they can turn on a dime, so to speak, by producing these phase transitions. So in the end, complex systems are fascinating because they're not clean and simple, and this makes them a lively playground for the mind. Second, complex systems are where the action is. The fundamental challenges of our time, managing climate change, maintaining ecosystems, regulating financial markets, preventing the creation of conditions that spawn terrorists to produce poverty, all of these are complex, not in some loose metaphorical sense, but in the formal sense we've defined in this course. They involve diverse, interacting, adaptive entities whose micro-level behaviors produce macro-level patterns to which they in turn adapt, creating new patterns. In the first 11 lectures in this course, we focused primarily on the basics of complex systems. We did basic blocking and tackling, so to speak. We named the parts and attributes and reveled in all of the ideas, self-organized criticality, universal computation, tipping points, homeostasis, power laws, and small worlds. In this last lecture, we're going to turn to some takeaway points. What have we learned from this brief foray into the study of complex systems? How can it help us choose better courses of action or even make better sense of the complex world around us? I think of this last lecture as exploring the space between lion taming and poking the tiger with a stick. We cannot hope to control complex systems through interventions. At best, to borrow a term introduced by Bob Axelrod and Michael Cohen, we might learn to harness complexity. We might learn to tame the lion. At the same time, we need to respect complexity. An actor in a complex system controls almost nothing, but influences almost everything. Let me repeat that. An actor in a complex system controls almost nothing, but influences almost everything. So attempts to intervene may be akin to poking the tiger with a stick. I want to begin by describing a non-complex system way of making choices that's known as decision theory. And this is going to give us some grounding. Now, decision theory predominates in business, government, and the nonprofit sector. We're going to see why this approach doesn't work in complex environments. It's going to provide a benchmark in which we can compare the lessons we've learned in this course about complex systems. Now, the canonical decision theory model of how to make choices, and this is the one that's taught in business schools, medical schools, and publicly, public policy programs, can be described as follows. You've got this decision maker who has a set of options before her. Time has two points. There's now, and then there's the future. In the future, there's some state of the world that's going to be revealed. So, for example, if you're contemplating buying a car, the possible states of the world might include moving to New York City, where you don't need a car. Or it might include having more children, which would mean you need a different type of car, one with more seats. The second step in making a decision in this way is to determine the payoff of each option in each state of the world. So, for example, if the option is to pack an umbrella in a state of the world is rain, then the payoff of the umbrella will be very high in that state. Right? So for each of these actions in each of these states, we have to figure out the payoff. The third step is we then compute the probability of each state of the world. 
The final step then gives us a cost-benefit analysis. We just want to choose the option that has the best expected payoff. Now, this may not be the one that has the highest expected monetary payoff because we might care about risk. So once we've written down all the options and all the possible states and the payoff of every option in every state, we sit back and we make what was thought of as a rational choice, our best possible choice. Now, I want to come clean right now and tell you that I love this model. It's a great model. I teach it to my undergraduates every year. It's extremely useful for teaching students of any age how to frame choices and how to compute the value of each choice and of having more information. So, for example, you can use this model to determine how much you would pay to reduce uncertainty over future states of the world. So businesses use this model daily. A big pharmaceutical company, for example, will use it to determine which medicines that it has in its pipeline should stay and which ones they should, in their terms, explode. Okay, now I love this model. It's true, but I'm also very aware of its limitations. So I love my bike. It's great, but I'm not going to use it to cross the Atlantic. And comparatively speaking, that's what a lot of folks are asking of this canonical model when they apply it to con complex systems. So this canonical decision-making model works great if you want to decide, should I buy a computer or should I prepay for a lower-priced ticket for my next vacation? But it's not a very good model for determining what to do within a complex system. And let me give four, but I think are very big reasons. Reason number one, the standard decision-making model doesn't take into account the behavior of other interested actors. Now, this shortcoming has long been known, and so the framework has been extended to create something called game theory. And so game theory is basically decision theory amended so you can take into account actions of other agents. Reason number two, the standard decision-making model translates complexity into uncertainty. So all of the complexity gets folded into some fixed probability distribution over the states of the world. Now, remember in the last lecture, we saw how assuming this sort of stationarity, assuming there's just some distribution out there, creates problems, right? We saw that in the collapse of long-term capital management. Reason number three, the standard decision-making model is all exploitation. Remember, this means making decisions or choices based on what you already know. So it doesn't allow for any exploration. It tells you, make the choice that gives you the best payoff. But in complex systems, you want to balance exploitation with exploration, right? Because remember, the landscape dances. And if the landscape is dancing, you've got to continue to explore. Reason number four, the standard decision-making model focuses on a single outcome, not on system properties such as connectedness, interdependence, diversity, rates of learning and selection, and so on, right? So therefore, the model doesn't take into account at all what the system might look like as the result of your action. Let me give an example. Your action may reduce diversity, and it may reduce diversity to dangerous levels. So even though you get a good outcome, you've changed the system in such a way that it doesn't have sufficient levels of diversity. So the first step toward effective action in a complex world is recognition. We have to recognize when a situation is complex and when it's not. Not everything is complex. Some systems are linear and predictable. And I should add, these aren't the same thing. Let me differentiate them. An effect is linear if when we plot it, we get a straight line. So the amount of money raised by a sales tax is linear in sales. In contrast, an effect is predictable if we know what's going to happen. So if I take a bowling ball and drop it on my foot, I can predict it's going to fall and it's going to hurt. Now an effect can be both linear and predictable, like the increase in the weight of a wheelbarrow as I add sand to it. An effect can also be linear and unpredictable. So what, what would that be? Well, 
Orly Ashenfelter, who's an economist at Princeton, has found, and this is sort of cool, that the quality of Bordeaux wines increases linearly with the average temperature in the Bordeaux region of France in September. No, really, that's true. But here's the thing. We cannot predict whether September is going to be warm or cool without, with much accuracy at all. So therefore, what we've got is we've got a linear effect, but that effect is not predictable. Now, it's also true that an effect can be nonlinear and predictable. So the weight of a rock increases with the radius cubed, right? So if I double the radius of a rock, I increase the weight eightfold. So that's not linear. All right. Last of all, and here we're getting to where sort of the meat of this lecture is, we can have nonlinear effects that are unpredictable. And this is the domain of complex systems. Complex, system, complex systems often produce these sorts of effects. Remember, we saw that when the lake became eutrophic. Everything seems fine, and then all of a sudden, an unpredictable moment, boom, we've got this algae-ridden lake. Systems that are not complex, right, the shoveling of coal, those can be figured out. Those can be controlled. We know what, we can, we can figure out what to do. We can make the best possible decisions. Situations that are complex, running a middle school, for example, right, that's going to require an awareness of the parts that make it complex so we can keep an eye on the key attributes. So just like the forest fire, just like the fire ranger must create small fires to reduce big ones, so might a school administrator create outlets to reduce small tensions lest they explode into sort of bigger ones. Once you've recognized complexity, then we at least have the hope of harnessing it, right, of taming the lion. However, in the face of complexity, even the most noble and well-intentioned efforts, intentioned efforts may, may fail. Now I want to consider for a moment humanitarian efforts. Connor Foley, who's a longtime British humanitarian, wrote a book called The Thin Blue Line. In this book, he demonstrates that interventions virtually never, those are his words, virtually never resolve crises. He compares them to performing heart surgery using plaster. It's an apt analogy. Countries like hearts are complex adaptive systems. You can't go in with the equivalent of scotch tape and hope to fix some, a heart that's dysfunctional, nor can you do the same with a country. So with that sobering introduction, let's think about how we might harness complexity to do some good out there. And our first step in that process is going to be to think in terms of attributes. Take these attributes that we've had and think of them as choice variables. Think of them as levers. Now, by choice variables or levers, what I mean is think of these as variables under our control. So remember back to our lecture of, on dials. I want to think of our ability to turn those dials so we can choose to increase diversity or to, let's say, decrease interdependencies. Now, I want to start with diversity. We've talked a lot about why diversity is beneficial. It's the engine of innovation, right, and so on. It contributes to robustness. So organizations and societies, writ large, probably should encourage diversity. Diversity is key, right? Yet we also saw that if we let agents become too diverse, then we're not going to exploit what has been learned. So we have to balance exploration against exploitation. So that's our first insight. We want to encourage diversity, but we don't want to encourage it too much. Now, this is a key point. Because without some source of diversity, selection is going to drive systems towards pure exploitation, and that's going to be dangerous. Remember in an earlier lecture we discussed how selection drives down diversity. That means that we need some force. We need some force out there to maintain diversity. When I say lack of diversity, this can exist not only in how people look. What's really important here is differences in how people think. It's this lack of cognitive diversity that can lead to collapse. Now, this is often known as groupthink. Others refer to this as a takeover by a dominant logic. 
That's the management phrase. So, for example, in the 1980s, IBM had a dominant logic. And that dominant logic was that mainframe computers were the way of the future. Now, the result was that IBM had this blind spot, and it prevented it for IBM from seeing, let alone anticipating in any way, the personal computer revolution. Now, stories like this beg the question, IBM has really smart employees. So how did this dominant logic come to be? Well, to answer this question, we need to look no further than one of our earlier lectures on positive feedbacks. Once we have a dominant logic gain a foothold, a number of positive feedbacks kick in, not the least of which is selection. So people who espouse the dominant logic are more likely to be promoted. This, in turn, creates an upper management that believes the dominant logic. And that creates even more incentives for the underlings to promote the dominant logic as well. Now, even without the incentives induced by the organizational structure, people might well fall into a dominant logic. As Eric Hoffer wrote in The Passionate Mind and Other Aphorisms, when people are free to do as they please, they usually imitate each other. Now, once a dominant logic takes hold, it becomes the way of interpreting events. Every piece of information gets shoehorned into the dominant logic, making that logic seem, seem even more compelling. The resulting groupthink can lead to disastrous or near-disastrous outcomes, such as when John F. Kennedy and his staff, of really, you remember they were called the best and the brightest, they brought us to the brink of world, of world war during the Bay of Pigs. Now again, I want to reiterate, this does not mean that diversity is always better. Diversity isn't necessarily needed if a situation is well understood. But once a situation is complex, and if the errors could result in catastrophe, then it makes sense to inject diversity at regular intervals, lest your dominant logic is going to have you producing mainframes and bundling up subprime loans. Diversity also prevents error. And this idea finds its clearest representation in something called Linus's law, which goes as follows. Given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. What does this mean? This law, which is named for Linus Torvald, the driver of Linux, was coined by Eric Raymond in his book-linked essay, The Cathedral and the Bazaar. What he means by all bugs are shallow is he means that any coding bug can be fine, found if enough people get to look at it. So what, what he does, what Eric Raymond does in this um, essay, The Cathedral and the Bazaar, is he, talk, he, com he basically compares two different systems for writing code, the cathedral model and the bazaar model. The cathedral model consists of the standard business model, where software is built by some restricted set of programmers who work like mad debugging every version. And then they only release the versions when they're perfect, or at least as perfect as they can be, may, be made. The bizarre model is more familiarly known as open source. In the open source or bizarre model, the code is written in full view of the public. So anyone, any programmer can go online, any set of eyeballs can notice a bug and can contribute to fixing it. They can do this via blogs, commentaries, or open websites. So if you have enough eyeballs, any bug is shallow. Any bug can be seen. Now, interestingly, and here again we're going to see this fan-out nature of complex systems, immune systems work the same way. The more diverse your immune system, the more bugs it can attack. Now, once your immune system is successful, what does it do? It uses a positive feedback mechanism to produce more of the antibodies to wipe out the virus. Note this logic works in reverse. So the more diverse the virus, the less likely your immune system will get it. So think about HIV. What does HIV do? It mutates and recombines as it spreads. That means it's a diverse set of attackers. Hence, if the immune system stops one version, that doesn't mean it's going to stop the others because HIV keeps adapting. So 
Good leaders know the value of diversity, and they promote it in myriad ways because they need diversity to prevent errors, and they need diversity to prevent diverse attacks, such as HIV. So what do they do? They rotate people's jobs and offices, they create parallel work teams, they bring in outsiders, and they hire people with diverse training. Remember, we were just talking about the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Following that, John F. Kennedy basically saw the need for more eyeballs. So he started inviting outside experts to sit in meetings and question his own advisors so as to ensure some diversity of thought. Kennedy learned the hard way. Without diversity, collapse can be in the offing. One last point about diversity. Recall our previous discussion about the tail wagging the dog, how the average sometimes matters less than what people at the extremes think. This leads to another bit of advice. Keep an eye on the tails. Even if on average people are happy, that doesn't mean that a riot won't occur. All it takes is a few angry people and a lot of positive feedbacks. Okay, now let's think about selection mechanisms as a lever. We just talked about diversity as a lever. Let's think about selection mechanisms as a lever, something we can turn. Evolution selects through reproduction. If you're not fit enough to reproduce, your kind doesn't get to continue to live in the future. You don't continue to exist. Well, organizations and markets do something similar. When an organization decides to promote, what they're doing is they're creating a selection mechanism. So suppose that an organization says, let's select the best individual performers for promotion. Well, this seems like a great idea, but what if the best individuals aren't good team players? The result may be an organization that's got a bunch of self-interested individuals at the top and is therefore destined to fail. Now, alternatively, an organization can go the other direction, and they could promote people who are just really well-liked. Well, this could create another sort of problem. This could create a firm full of really nice people who never challenge anyone. Determining performance measures is really a tricky business. It's a very subtle business. Let me give an example. This is one of my favorite examples in all of complex systems. Carl Sims, who's a computer programmer, once wrote a computer program that was intended to produce objects capable of locomotion. So what he does, this is just great, he encodes the laws of Newtonian physics And he sets loose some evolutionary forces of selection, reproduction, mutation, and recombination. And what it was supposed to do was sort of evolve these creatures that moved. Now, his performance measure was just the distance traveled by the center of mass. So he sets this program loose and lets it run. And to his surprise, his evolutionary program, this computer program, this agent-based model, evolves these huge towers. They just fell over. Now, this seems really odd. Right? It doesn't make any sense. But then you realize, wait, what was his performance measure? What was his selection criteria? What lever was he using? It was move the center of mass as far as possible. So think about it for a second. What did his program do? It came up with a brilliant answer, a brilliant design. It got really tall and fell over. When you do that, your center of mass moves really far, really quickly. So how did he overcome this problem? Well, what he did is he changed his performance measure. He made it the minimum distance traveled by any point on the object. So in that case, the thing that fell over, the bottom of it never moved, and it wasn't very fit. So once he changed his selection criterion, his program evolved little things that were swimmers and crawlers and paddlers. It did exactly what he wanted. So that's insight number two. You have to be careful how you define goals and incentives in a complex system. Now, on this same point, there's a saying known as Orgel's Second Law, named for Leslie Orgel, who was a British chemist, who's actually more well-known really for working with Francis Crick, and he later took up residence at the Salk Institute. Orgel's Second Law is this. Evolution is smarter than you are. 
Now, the way I'd like to interpret this rule is as follows. Evolution is unsparing in what it tries. It is, to quote Dawkins, a blind watchmaker. It'll find a solution to almost any problem, but it might not be the solution you anticipated. But smarter than we are? Come on, we listen to the great professors on tape. That can't be true. Well, I'm actually sorry to say, but for all of our human powers of cognition, we're often blinded by these dominant logics. Now, these logics may be based on science, religion, culture. Regardless, because we have them, we don't try everything. We don't waste our time trying to do what we think is impossible. Evolution mindlessly tries every possible combination. So with enough time, it's eventually going to win. Now, despite all of its constraints, evolution often can be smarter than we are then, right? All we have to do is remember the pony fishes glow. Remember how their bellies lit up? Okay, next lever, interdependencies. Now, here I want to go back to the book by Axelrod and Cohen, which is called Harnessing Complexity. They talk a lot about the concept of self-organized criticality leading up to a third lesson. And that third lesson is this. Don't become so obsessed with making small efficiency gains, small efficiency improvements, that you push a, st- a system toward a critical state. Now, how can this happen? Well, let, let's think. Following the terrorist attacks of 9-11, border security between the U.S. and Canada increased. So what happened is this slowed traffic between the two countries, particularly the Ambassador Bridge between Detroit and Windsor, Canada. There are some companies, actually auto companies, that relied on just-in-time inventory techniques. And they found that they didn't have sufficient parts to continue operations. Because some of their companies had suppliers, right, uh, that were in other countries, in Canada. So this resulted in cascading failures. So if you've got a system like a supply chain with lots of interconnections, you've got to leave some slack. Otherwise, a simple failure like a backup at a bridge can lead to a cascade. Now remember, cascades, it's the idea that one failure begets another, which begets another, which begets another, which is what we saw in our sandpile model of self-organized criticality. Now notice here, this is provocative. This runs directly counter to the advice we get from optimization thinking, from our decision theory model. It's basically saying, don't optimize. Now it's not quite saying that. It's saying, don't optimize fully. So it's okay to be 98% effective. It's just don't shoot for 100%. Now, if the system is completely independent, if you're making the 21-pound shovel, you're fine. But if the system's interdependent, you want to build in some slack. Okay, last but not least, let's look at connections. So let's let's think of connections as a lever. When you have a network, what happens is is that it's formed by agent-level incentives. So the resulting network may or may not have the properties that we want. So the Internet, remember we talked about this, it's robust to random attack, even though no one set out to make it so. So when we think about a complex system, it's important to ask, what were the incentives and what connections exist? Do we have the right connections? So in comparing the connections that exist and comparing the connections that might be, we can think about possible interventions. So there's only two. One is we can make a new connection. The other is we could sever an existing connection. How can we decide to do each? What might we have learned in this course that tells us how to cut and how to connect? New connections should be created if they produce synergies. So for example, we have physicists who study fractals, and we have biologists who've identified fractal structures in the nervous system and circulatory system. So a physicist who connects to a biologist might produce a synergism. And in fact, pathbreaking work by Jeffrey West, who's the physicist at the Santa Fe Institute, did exactly that. He and his co-authors, a mix of biologists and physicists, were able to derive theorems that explain these sort of fractal scaling phenomena in species. So, for example, they can explain how metabolic rates in animals scale with size. So it's this great synergy. 
Ron Bird, a sociologist at the University of Chicago, refers to these sort of interdisciplinary actions as filling in structural holes. Robert Putnam of Harvard refers to these as bridging links. Regardless of the terminology we use, what we see is the value of creating links between knowledge domains that might not have existed from independent incentives. Now, on the other hand, sometimes there's links that exist that we should cut because these links discourage innovation. So this idea of severing links underpins what some people call a greenfield strategy. Perhaps the most famous example of a greenfield strategy is the Saturn Auto Company, which was funded by General Motors, but which operated completely you know, independently, at least initially. There were very few connections to the main organization. So when I say greenfield, what I mean is you create a separate company that's disconnected from the other company. So the thinking on GM's part was that connections to the parent company would stifle innovation, and they would reinforce a dominant logic. So this is insight number four. Search for potentially synergistic links and cut off those links that limit innovation and responsiveness. Okay, it's true, right? These lessons are easier said than done. But notice their coherence. Synergistic links exploit diversity and positive interdependencies. Selection tempers diversity to help balance exploration and exploitation. Pulling back on efficiency a bit to allow some slack not only ensures robustness, but it promotes greater innovation by allowing diversity. So this is true in businesses and organizations. It's also true in ecosystems, which allow lots of small inefficiencies. So let's do a little empirical test to see if this passes just a basic sniff test. Let's go back and look at what sort of organizations have proven robust through time. Well, how could we do that? Well, we could do is we could open up a book and we could say, okay, what organizations have been around not for five years, 10 years, 50 years, but 500 years? That's right, 500 years. What are we going to find? Well, we're going to find more than 40 universities. This is going to include Oxford, which is pushing 900, and then only 125 or so businesses. Now, this is surprising because there's way, way more businesses than universities, and so this suggests universities are far more robust than businesses. Now, this agrees with what we'd expect from complex systems. Why? Universities have always promoted diversity, and they've always built in a lot of slack to allow for this sort of experimentation. So we, get, we can sort of understand then why so many universities and why so few businesses. Now, if we look at these 125 or so businesses that have been around for 500 years, guess what? Two-thirds are breweries, taverns, restaurants, and hotels. So... These have not been businesses historically that try and squeeze out every last nickel. You know, they're sort of laid-back business enterprise. And the other 40 or so are a mix of candy makers, cheese makers, knife makers, jewelers and, jewelers and pharmacies. So we're not finding banks and construction companies here. We're not finding cutthroat businesses. So it turns out a little slack really is a good thing if you want robustness. Now, Jenna Bednar, a political scientist at the University of Michigan, has written a book called The Robust Federation. In that book, she makes the point that this same idea holds for governments. Robust federated governments need slack. They need room for some slippage. The slippage basically allows novel policies that keep governments fresh and responsive. The U.S. Constitution has held us together for more than 200 years, but it's hardly a paragon of efficiency. By permitting freedoms, it encourages diversity. And though it sets incentives in place, they're not that well-defined. So the Constitution aligns with many of the core insights we've just discussed. Be careful how you set incentives. Encourage diversity. Keep an eye on the tails. Don't get too caught up in little efficiency gains. Sever unnecessary connections. 
and encourage synergistic connections. Now these may seem straightforward, but I want to stop for just a second and recognize how they depart again from the standard idea of command and control optimization. If you take a command and control optimization approach, you set incentives with only outcomes in mind. You don't necessarily think about the implications of those incentives on the future set of behaviors and types. You discourage your diversity. You want people to be on point. You seek out every possible efficiency gain, and you control the structure of the organization. You don't let people loose to muck things up on the organizational chart. And finally, you make decisions from the top down, not the bottom up. Now, command and control isn't wrong. It's great if we fire a group of people to paint a house or build a bridge. But it's not the right thing to do if we're hoping to thrive in a complex world. The world is too complex to be controlled. So try as we might to rationally plan. We're going to wake up and find holes in the ozone layer, CO2 building up in the atmosphere, bombs going off in public squares, and markets crashing. This is the cost of a complex world. As Emerson wrote, as soon as there is life, there is danger. So be it. And yet this same complexity supports emergent phenomena ranging from the sublime structure of snowflakes, which we do understand, to the wondrous consciousness of our own minds, which we don't and may never will. In between these two lie emergent phenomena like the financial networks we described in an earlier lecture. These we may eventually comprehend, and we may be able to prevent crashes. Our simple firewall model suggests that appropriate safeguards might emerge with sufficient learning. But empirical evidence suggests that what emerges maybe isn't that robust. So our goal should be to push our understanding of these systems, because only through understanding can we move from a position of poking the tiger with a stick to one where we're taming the lion. So now that we've reached the end, I want to return to the beginning, or at least the near beginning, when we discussed rugged and dancing landscapes. When we confront a fixed rugged landscape, we possess the potential for ultimate success. We solved Fermat's last theorem, we discovered the double helix, and many of us finished the Sunday New York Times crossword last weekend. With sufficient time on a rugged landscape, we can map every summit and every valley. But when the landscape dances, we must adapt. We must meet each new challenge with an expanding ensemble of tools and understanding. Our lives play out on dancing landscapes. So we must continue to learn. We must continue to adjust. We wouldn't want it any other way. Thank you.